Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and turn to the very first verse of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And uh, believe it or not, I'm going to preach through the entire Bible this morning. At least that's the plan. Uh, The title of the message is The Vocabulary of Advent. Now, you know that we're committed here to the verse-by-verse teaching and preaching of God's Word. We aim at teaching the Bible in context, and the best way to do that, we believe, is studying entire books. And so we've been studying verse-by-verse for over four years now through the Gospel of Luke, taking breaks here and there. Uh, This year especially, we've been devoted to the study of eschatology, which is the study of last things. We studied through the 12 chapters of Daniel, the first three chapters of Revelation. And the last four weeks, we've been uh, working through the 21st chapter of Luke under the title of the signs of the second coming. So my heart and many of your hearts have been uh, upon the second advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, The title of the message this morning, as I said, is the vocabulary of advent. Advent means arrival or coming, specifically the coming of Jesus into the world. We celebrate the first advent this time of year, we call it Christmas. His second advent is still in the future. And as we've seen in Luke 21 and in the book of Daniel, he's coming in the clouds for all the world to see. And this morning I want to give you 13 words that if you will memorize them, uh, commit them to memory, they will help you in a number of ways. Uh, The first way, it would encourage you to persevere in the faith. These are difficult days we are living in. And so we need to be mindful that history is not a series of disconnected events, that God has a plan. And it's unfolding exactly the way he wants it to. And it will encourage you to be reminded of that. It will also give you confidence to tell others about that plan. We call it the eternal plan of redemption. We call that evangelism, by the way. And when I shared with some friends that I had 13 points in this sermon, someone said, well, that's awfully ambitious. Well, they didn't know just how ambitious this sermon is. You see, the ultimate purpose of this message is to help you and every member of our church explain to anyone who asks, the meaning of human existence. And so the aim of this sermon is to explain the meaning of life. Now, would every member of First Baptist Church of Keller to be able to give the reason for the hope that is within us. And it begins in Genesis chapter one, and our first word is creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we teach here a literal six days of literal 24 hour days of creation. And if you can't believe that, how in the world are you going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? God's highest creation is man. He was created on the sixth day. And as he said of all of his creation, it's good. And God created for man a perfect environment in which to live, the Garden of Eden. And not only that, he gave to man, Adam, a helpmate, because two are better than one, the scripture says. He gave them one prohibition. They were not to eat of the tree that was in the midst of the garden. But of course, Satan tempted Eve and she ate and she gave to her husband and he ate. And at that moment, their innocence was lost. And that led to the curse and all of that together we call the fall. That is the fall from a state of innocence. 
And that leads right away to Genesis chapter three. Now it's gonna be impossible for you to, to keep up. So what I'd encourage you to do is take a pen and just write the references down and go back and look them up for yourself. And in chapter three, we see something theologians call the proto-evangelium, which is the first telling of the gospel. Protos, first evangelism or evangel, um, good news. And so this is the first telling of the gospel. Three chapters in to the book of Genesis. Listen to this. Remember, God came to them, called them all on the carpet. There was Adam, there was Eve, there was the serpent. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any animal of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And that word descendant capitalized should be in your Bible because that speaks of the coming Messiah. The seed of woman is the Messiah who would bruise Satan on the head. That is to crush him completely and put him down. And that is the first telling of the gospel. The first indication that God was going to save sinners. Now, how would he accomplish this great reclamation project? Again, we call that big picture, the eternal plan of redemption. Well, it begins in the Bible in something called the old covenant. That's our third word. The old covenant is God's agreement with his chosen people, the nation of Israel to bless them if they would be obedient to his commandments and laws. There's also a system of sacrifices by which he would pass over their sins. Um, we read this most clearly, I think, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. He says, see, I have placed before you today life and happiness and death and adversity, in that I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, so that you may live and become numerous and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but allow yourself to be led astray and you worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will certainly perish. Of course, we know that's exactly what happened. They did turn away to other gods and every opportunity. But this old covenant was a system of laws and sacrifices through which God's chosen people, Israel, related to their creator. But in the Old Testament, we also had some other covenants, a series of covenants that began with what we call the Noahic covenant made between God and Noah. Remember, he promised to Noah that he never again would destroy the earth with a flood. And then we come to the Abrahamic covenant. God chose one man out of all the people of the earth, this man called Abram, from Ur of the Chaldees, and he made him certain promises. He was gonna give him a land, and that he was gonna prosper him and make him the father of many nations, and through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we know the blessing that came to all humanity through Israel was Jesus. There was the Mosaic Covenant, and this is really technically what we call the Old Covenant, the system by which God relates to his chosen people. And then there's also something called the Davidic covenant made between God and David. Speaking of the Messiah, he said that through David's family, there would be an eternal king upon the throne of Israel. You put all that together and you get a picture of what God's doing in the Old Testament. And so at the end of your Old Testament in your Bible, many of you should have a blank page. And that blank page is symbolic of a period of silence from heaven. 
that God did not speak through prophets for several hundred years. We call that the intertestamental period. And when he did speak again, it was through a man by the name of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he foretold that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right at the door. It's here. And then, of course, he recognized Jesus, not himself, as the Messiah. And that, of course, uh, speaks of the incarnation. That's the fourth word. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word, speaking of the Lord Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul verified that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, that is, held on to tightly, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is the incarnation, the enfleshment. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has existed from all of eternity. He was there at creation. In fact, John says, all things were made by him and through him, but he took on the form of a man and identified with humanity at his virgin birth. And we call this his incarnation. And we read about it in Luke chapter two in the Christmas story. And I encourage all of you to read that entire chapter as a family sometime this week. Well, I talked about the old covenant. Would you ever wonder why it's called the old covenant? It's called an old covenant because it was replaced by a new covenant and then it became the old covenant. And this new covenant is a covenant of grace ratified through the blood of Jesus through his sacrificial death. Now, the Old Testament spoke of a new covenant that would come all the way back to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord, I will put my law within them, write it on their heart, I will be their God and they shall be my people and they will not teach again each one of his neighbor and each one of his brothers saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will no longer remember. It's no longer a covenant of law and punishment and sacrifices. It's a covenant of grace and forgiveness. And Jesus, of course, when he sat down to take the Lord's Supper for the first time with his disciples there in the upper room, declared this new covenant, this new testament that he was ratifying through his own blood. And speaking of his blood, that's our next word. It is the atonement. The word atonement means to cover. And what is covered through the shed blood of Jesus is our sin and guilt. The book of Hebrews states it so clearly. Why? The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. He says, for the law, that's the old covenant, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come. See, the old covenant was never intended to save anyone. The apostle Paul says, by the law shall no one be forgiven, right? That was not the purpose of the law. The old covenant was to show us how guilty we are so that we would see our need of salvation. 
So for the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the form of those things itself, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year, make those who approach perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. And so you follow the logic there. We, we know that those bulls and goats and doves and all those animals that were sacrificed under the old covenant didn't have any power ultimately to forgive. They were a shadow or a type of the once for all sacrifice that was to come. We know that because they had to keep repeating it over and over, day after day, year after year. And yet when Christ came, he says, you have not desired sacrifice and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. You have not taken pleasure in whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O Lord. After saying above sacrifices and offering, whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you have not desired, you have not taken pleasure in them. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Hear this, once for all time. And in the new covenant, we don't have a sacrificial system, do we? I didn't see anyone with a pickup truck and a trailer with sacrificial animals pulling into the driveway this morning, thank goodness, because Jesus has accomplished that through his once for all sacrifice on the cross. He has done everything that is necessary for us to be made right with a holy God. And we call that technically substitutionary atonement. You see, we deserve to be the one on the cross, but he took our place. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2, 24, and he himself brought our sins in his own body up on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Jesus took our sins upon himself at the cross. Isaiah 53, 5 predicted this, that he would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes we'd be healed. That's substitutionary atonement. But aren't you glad the story doesn't end at the cross? Because if it had ended at the cross, Jesus would just be a historical figure that we admire. Yet another martyr in the long list of martyrs in human history for a cause. And that's why the sixth word is so essential. It's the word resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now there are some people who think the resurrection is superfluous to the gospel. That is, it's an add-on. It's not as important as the substitutionary atonement. They're wrong. This is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now, I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also receive and which you also stand. Now, Paul's going to summarize the gospel now. By which you were also saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I handed down to you as of first importance, not of secondary importance, of tertiary importance, of first importance, what I received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, comma, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, if there is no resurrection, then Christians are of all people most to be pitied. We've been wasting our time all these years. Then he quickly follows up, but now there is a resurrection. Because the resurrection is true, it tells us some things. It tells us first 
that God the Father is totally and perfectly satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. That's important to all of us because if Jesus had not shed enough blood or done enough at the cross, the possibility would be that we would still be in our sins. But he is perfectly satisfied once and for all, the book of Hebrews says, because Jesus not only died on the cross, he lived a perfect life, which qualified him to die in our place. But the story doesn't stop at the resurrection, as wonderful as that is. It leads to our eighth word, which is the ascension. And we find the story of the ascension, ascend means to go up in Acts chapter one. A few years ago, we studied through the book of Acts. And you recall that uh, Jesus had told his disciples to, to go to the upper room and wait on the Holy Spirit to come in power. And that's what happened. That led to the, the day of Pentecost. Uh, but you know that uh, 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he ascended from the Mount of Olives back into heaven. Now listen to it. The first account I composed, this is Dr. Luke writing to his friend Theopolis, telling him the story of the first century church. He says, the first account I composed Theopolis about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things regarding the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, which you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Now hear this. So when they'd come together, they began asking him saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? They still didn't understand his bigger picture. But he said to them, it is not for you to know periods of times or appointed times which the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We call ourselves here an Acts 1-8 church, don't we, Brother Lawrence? And what we're saying is that our task is what Jesus gave through his apostles you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now hear this. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were watching. A cloud took him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you look standing in the sky? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, why is that Important, because the scripture says that when he comes again, remember this is the vocabulary of the advent, of the arrival, of the coming. When he comes again, he's coming how, Luke 21 says, in the clouds, in the same way they said as he goes away, he's coming again. And this time it's not gonna be in secret, in an animal stable, in an obscure place like Bethlehem. Not in the middle of the night. It's going to be clear for all to see when he comes in his glory. And so that's his ascension. But it doesn't stop there. That leads uh, ninthly to his session. To, to, a session means to be seated. The judge comes in and sits down in his chair and pounds the gavel. Someone says the court is now in what? In session. He is seated. The scripture says that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The right hand is a place of authority and honor, isn't it? And Jesus is deserving of all of that honor and authority. Uh, excuse me, Romans 8, 31. 
The apostle Paul is speaking and he says, what then shall we say to these things? And these things, of course, of all the possibilities that could separate us from the love of God, of which none of them could. If God is for us, and he is, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised. Hear this, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. See, that's what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. You know that, right? He's interceding for you as a Christian. To intercede means to stand between two opposing parties. So what is Jesus doing? He's standing between you and me and every born again Christian and the righteous wrath of God that we deserve. So we, there's no condemnation this chapter says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus took our place at the cross through substitutionary atonement. God the Father agrees that that satisfied him through the resurrection. And for all of eternity, we don't have to fear the wrath of God because we are in Christ. He always and ever intercedes before us, before the Father. Now that leads to uh, the 10th word. I think many have been wondering through the, the study of Luke 21, we haven't talked about, that is the rapture. Well, I said last week it's because Luke 21 doesn't mention the rapture. The rapture is the word, the word rapture is not in the Bible. The concept of the Bible is in the Bible in a number of places, most clearly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. The word rapture comes through a Greek word in this passage, which means to snatch away. And this is what this, the Apostle Paul said. Remember, he's writing to the church at Thessalonica, and they don't have any instruction, apparently, about what happens to believers who die before the Lord returns. And they were expecting the Lord to return any day. And some of their best and brightest were growing ill and old and dying. And they wondered what happens to these folks who aren't around when Christ comes back. And Paul writes, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. That's a beautiful euphemism for death for Christians, to fall asleep in this world and wake up in the presence of the Lord, so that you will not grieve as indeed the rest of mankind do who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. So those who have died, their spirits are with the Lord. Paul says to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. But one day, those spirits will come with Christ and be reunited with resurrected bodies. Verse 15, for we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would ascend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That is the rapture. Now, put a note here. This confuses a lot of Christians. The rapture is not the second coming. Those are two different things. Jesus doesn't set his foot in 1 Thessalonians 4 back on planet earth. He comes in the clouds. He snatches away the church. They receive resurrected bodies. They go back to heaven. And the second coming awaits. Now the question is, when does the rapture occur? Well, there's two major theories. One is um, before the tribulation. That's called pre-trib rapture. And then there's a, a mid-trib rapture view. Um, 
Look, we're not going to fight over that. But uh, the Lord's coming for his church is the point. I think one of the great evidences of that is that as we were studying the book of Revelation, the first three chapters are all about the church. Did you notice that? The seven churches of Asia Minor. The church, that word is not mentioned again. And so that's great evidence, I think, that the church is removed before all of these seals and judgments come. Now, if you don't believe that, we can talk about it privately. But that's the 10th word, rapture. Now, the 11th word is tribulation. And you note that the word rapture is 10th and the tribulation is 11th. That tells you a lot about my, my rapture view, pre-tribulation. Daniel 9, 24. Going back to this summer when we were studying the book of Daniel, you remember Daniel had received this message from the Lord through angels about the nation of Israel and what was going to happen, what had happened and what would happen. And it was set in terms of 70 weeks. And remember, there's only one week left that's unaccounted for in history. And I said, that is the time of Jacob's trouble. That is what we call the tribulation. It's the final week of Daniel. Now here again, Daniel 9, 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the wrongdoing, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. I'm not a math major, but 62 and seven are 69. And he says there's going to be 70 weeks. And so one week is unaccounted for. Verse 26, then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That is his crucifixion. And the people of the prince who is to come, the prince is to come as the Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Didn't Jesus predict that in Luke 21? That not one stone is going to be left on another in the temple. That happened in 70 AD. And it will come with a flood even to the end, and there will be war, desolations, or determined. He will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. There's that one week. This is the Antichrist. This is still in the future. But in the middle of the week, that is the three and a half year period, we call the Great Tribulation, when there's especially terrible signs. Remember Jesus said in Luke 21, when you see the signs of the army surrounding the city, and then the final sign is you see him coming in the clouds. He says, look up because your redemption is drawing nigh. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate. That's the abomination of desolation and complete destruction. One that is decreed gushes forth on the one who makes desolate. And so all of human history is winding down to this one final event. By the way, it's important to say at this point, the biblical worldview of history is linear, that it has a beginning point. From our perspective, that's Genesis 1-1. That's why we started. In the beginning, what? God created the heaven and the earth. And then he began to relate to humanity through a series of covenants. But all of it is not a circle, as Eastern religions teach us, of death and rebirth. It has a starting point, and it has a definite ending point. And the ending point of human history is when Jesus returns, sets his foot back in Jerusalem, literally, and puts down the Antichrist and defeats the enemies of the Lord and sets up his kingdom on earth. Now you remember when Daniel had those 
visions. First of the statue with the various metals forming the appendages of the body. And then as he saw those beasts coming forward, remember those were the kingdoms and empires of the world. And it started with the Babylonians and then the Medo-Persians, which gave way to the Greeks and the Romans. And then there was this one kingdom unnamed that was to come, this boastful horn, the feet mixed with iron and clay, which rose out of the old Roman empire. That is the kingdom of the Antichrist. And then what happened to that statue? A stone which was carved without human hands came and dashed it to dust. And that is, Daniel said, the kingdom of God's dear son. That is the kingdom of the Messiah. And we take that very literally, and that's your 12th word, the millennial kingdom. A millennium is a thousand years, of course. Matt read from Isaiah, which describes the millennial kingdom, this peace on earth. Isaiah told us that when this Messiah came, the government would be on his shoulders, that all the world would bow before him, in other words, and recognize his right to rule and his authority. Do we see that around us today? Is everyone bowing their knee to Jesus? No, that's still in the future. That speaks of his millennial kingdom when he puts down Antichrist and he sets up his literal rule and reign in Jerusalem. The scripture says that will last for a thousand years. Revelation 22, and he took hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. And then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ. How long? For a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Three times he tells us. And there's no reason to think that's a metaphor. That's what a lot of people teach and believe. But a metaphor typically um, exaggerates something rather than minimizing it. It's been 2,000 years and since Jesus ascended back into heaven. And if, as some says, the millenn this thousand years just represents an unspecified large period of time, it's at least understated it by a thousand years. So I take it to be a literal thousand year reign where there's going to be peace on earth and Jesus literally rules and reigns, but that's not even the end. The end comes in Revelation 21. I told you I was gonna preach from Genesis to Revelation. Let's finish in Revelation. Revelation 21, let's look together. And I read this text at every funeral of every Christian I know of. By the way, that's been 65 times this year. And I want to remind believers, remember I told you that this sermon is designed to encourage you in your walk. That's why I read it at funerals. 
Because I'm going to encourage people that death is not the end. Something else is coming in God's eternal redemptive plan. And John had this incredible privilege of seeing it. Somehow supernaturally, God allowed John to be transported in the future to see how the world ends. And we call this, your 13th word is the eternal state. After the millennial kingdom, the thousand years comes to an end. Here's what happens. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. We say, well, what's this all about? Do you remember the Noahic covenant? God promised that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. Well, he is going to destroy the earth with fire. Peter says that all these elements are going to be burned up with fervent heat. And God is going to replace this cursed planet with something new, which he calls a new heaven and a new earth. Verse two, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Now here, verse four, this is really where the rubber hits the road as far as your encouragement. This is how history ends. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. You remember how the world got in such a mess? Our first parents in Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And God cursed humanity and he cursed the earth. And every problem you face can be traced back to that moment. But God is merciful and kind, isn't he? Not willing to leave us in that state. His eternal plan of redemption is that from all of a rebellious humanity, he was going to save a group of people we call the church. And he's going to pre preserve them through his judgment, even death could not separate them from the love of God. And one day he's going to put an end to sin. And we think about heaven, sometimes we think about it in terms of the um, penalty and power of sin having no effect upon us. But in the eternal state, what he's saying here is that we will be separated in the eternal state from the very presence of sin. And everything that was made wrong because of sin's entrance into the world is going to be made right in the new heaven and the new earth. And he said it so clearly that we say to amen and amen. That's God's eternal plan of redemption. Friends, this is nothing more than the meaning of life. Life from a Christian's perspective is not disordered. It, it's not disjointed. It all fits within God's sovereign plan and it's unfolding day after day, hour after hour, second after second, just exactly the way he intends it to. Does that encourage your heart? Does that give you boldness to share with your neighbors that there is hope in the world? And does that give you clarity for the next time someone says in your presence, what is the meaning of life? You've got 13 words you can fire off and give to them, okay? Which ends in the eternal state. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this, your word. And I know we move fast today, covered a lot of ground. But Lord, in essence, this is the meaning of life. That in the beginning, you created the heaven and the earth, including humanity. And history began to unfold in the way that you had determined it to. You chose a people from all the nations of the world through Abraham to set aside as different and distinct that through them the Messiah would come and make it possible for anyone who called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You gave them a system called the Old Covenant through which they could relate to you through sacrifices because you knew they would continue to sin. And Of course, those sacrifices had to be repeated over and over because they kept sinning. They were simply types and shadows of the Messiah who would come to take on the sins of the world at the cross through substitutionary atonement. And the Lord Jesus would come and be incarnated and uh, live a perfect life and go to the cross to be that substitutionary atonement. But death could not hold him, the grave could not keep him because on the third day he rose again, victorious over death and the grave. And for 40 days he was witnessed to by many and in their presence, he ascended in the clouds back into heaven. And one day he's coming again in like manner, he promised to. And he sat down at your right hand where he is now ever making intercession for us, separating us sinners from our deserved wrath. Thank you that there is no condemnation for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. And one day he's coming for the church at the rapture and not even death can separate us. Paul says that those who are dead will rise first and then those that remain will be caught up together and there we will be with the Lord forevermore. Thank you, Lord, because these words do indeed bring comfort to our hearts. Then, Father, we know that that's not the end of the story. There's going to come a seven-year period of tribulation like the world has never seen or ever will, Jesus said. And that Antichrist is going to arise and he's going to cause people to bow down and worship him. And just when it seems all is lost, Jesus is gonna come in the clouds, this time not riding the foal of a donkey, this time riding a white war horse with a banner across his chest, which reads, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's going to put down all of his enemies and he's gonna set up his millennial, millennial kingdom on earth. And we're gonna rule and reign with him for a thousand years with peace on earth. And then at the end of that thousand years, the new heaven and the new earth are going to be unwrapped. And we're going to be free once and for all from not only the penalty and power of sin, but the very presence of sin. And so we say with the saints for 2,000 years, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray these prayers in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.